Good morning, Calvary. So good to be with you. If we haven't met, I'm Jay Ewing. I'm pastor of Community Life here on the Erie campus. We're turning the page quite literally to chapter two of the book of James. We're in the Mark It Up series here at Calvary. Last week, Tom did an excellent job of the last two verses of James 1. If you've been around James, James, the book of James, for some time, it feels like the author is all over the place, isn't it? Like he's just scatterbrained. I've always read James that way in the last 20 years I bumped into him. It wasn't until getting ready for this message actually today that I learned that some consider this book a collection of James, best, the, James, the brother of Jesus, best synagogue sermons. Now that's really interesting to me, uh, being a preacher, but also that that sort of places James in this unique letter because it's a collection of his best work, of his best ideas within the local church in Jerusalem that he wants to communicate to those who've been scattered due to persecution. As we think about this unique letter, unlike any other letters in the Bible, you can see how this makes sense. It's been said the collection of sermons are about being a Christian. James wants those scattered from Jerusalem due to persecution to be reminded of how faith in Christ changes the way we live and treat each other. Here's how it works in my head. Take this microscope, okay? I bought this off of Amazon. This is a kid's microscope, so it's not that powerful. But it is a microscope. And James has these ideas, these slides. One maybe be like trials, right? How to examine trials. And he puts it under the microscope. Or what? Taming the tongue. Puts it under, again, the microscope. Widows. Orphans, how to read God's word, wisdom. And today we're going to look at the slide under the microscope of partiality. Let me take you just a quick second, remind us that the early church spread the good news about Jesus, the life, the death, and the resurrection from synagogue to synagogue. Synagogue preaching was the earliest model for the gospel, for the good news about Jesus. To talk about it through the population of Jerusalem and beyond. The first believers were Jewish. James writes in the real world and in documents, in his documents, demonstrates the scope of the first century history taking place. Today we'll look at James' concern over favoritism, partiality. And we put it under the microscope, we'll make sense of how this topic might influence our local church and how we treat others. James asks, how does the world value these type of people? And what he was meaning is, well, last week, the last two verses, widows and orphans. Because if you have a great ministry like we know of in Acts with Stephen to those who are helpless or vulnerable, your church is going to start having those type of people. So how do you treat them? How does Jesus value these people? But on some level, those questions keep at a theoretical for us. He brings it down to the very practical, forcing us to answer, how do I show partiality? Especially to the individuals I believe, I, those individuals I believe can do something for me. This morning I have a few stories to sort of demonstrate 
partiality that I've seen it play out in my own life. Now, my aunt lives in Dallas, and when I was in high school, I worked for her a whole summer, and uh, it was hard work. She owned a landscaping business. She was a divorcee, single in her mid-50s, just crushing life, and then I got a diagnosis of cancer, breast cancer, and it really rocked her world, and in fact, it led her eventually to faith in Christ, and she came to faith at a church, one of the largest African-American churches in the Dallas metro area. And so when I worked for her that summer, I would have to get up, or she forced me to get up around 6 a.m. to get to church with her. If her cousin, her, her nephew was gonna be with her all summer long, he, at least he was gonna get to experience some Jesus, right? And so at 6 a.m., she would wake me up, I would get ready, we would be at the church doors at 7 a.m. They wouldn't open until 8 a.m., so we're outside waiting in the Texas heat in the summer. Hopefully, if you got a good enough seat or a good enough place in line, you could be under some shade in that Texas sun, even at 7 a.m. 8 a.m., the doors would open. And nine, we would go in, and then 9 a.m., the service would start. So this is like a very popular church, and my aunt is very serious about her faith, and she wanted one of the best seats in the house. So here is her nephew, who is groggy, tired, sore, going to church with her. At 8.58, on multiple Sundays, right before services start, out of a side door, Deion Sanders would appear and take his seat in the front row of the church. Now, being a middle school, high school boy, I was pretty impressed. I loved the Dallas Cowboys. These were the golden years. These are when we won Super Bowls. And Deion Sanders had just recently come to faith. He had been public about it. But then and there, I saw something I thought was very unique. How uh, influential, a rich person could come to church and how I came to church were very distinct. Now, I didn't play for the Dallas Cowboys. I get it. But... Very distinct. So I have some friends from Moscow. They're missionaries. They just recently had to evacuate Moscow. They've been with crew for uh, 15 years, over 15 years. And uh, he was telling me a story just actually on Friday as we were hanging out. He was saying that in his church on Christmas Eve, it was packed. They have three services in Moscow. It was packed. It was standing room only. And about five minutes before service comes up, the attache of the American ambassador comes and asks, where is the ambassador's seat? Now, my friend Dan was like, the ambassador's seat? We didn't know the United States ambassador was coming to Christmas Eve service. We don't have a seat. She's like, well, you can go ask someone to move so they can have a seat. And Dan says, no, that's not possible. She's no, this, this is very possible. He's the ambassador. He said, no, it's not possible because the Bible says it's not possible. <laughs> and so, well, the ambassador, to give him credit, came up to Dan and was like, you know, I totally get it. I understand. And so Dan has a picture of the ambassador actually standing in the lobby, looking through the door to watch Christmas Eve service of the United States, which is amazing in itself that that ambassador would be humble enough to do that. But those are stories that really document 
what it looks like to show partiality. What do stories like this illustrate? Why are, they always, why are we always attracted to beautiful and wealthy people? Does it mean we want to ride their coattails? We're tempted to be around people that maybe have their lives together and are more important, who can give us something? Now, I realize when you hear the stories, you might think, I've never been in that position, or I will never have any clue that ever happens. But how might we engage in this type of behavior in smaller ways in our lives? Do you find ourselves seeking our friendships with people that we deem to be well-connected? Do you notice yourself having preferences for hanging out with people at church whose lives are similar in neighborhood or where your kids go to school? Or what about outsiders of the church at work? Do you find yourself turning away from relationships with people because they don't play a major role in your success? Here's the bottom line. We don't display the gospel in its best light when we play favoritism. Let me ask you a, a really personal question. What limits you because of favoritism or partiality? Better yet, how should we rethink partiality? James has something to say. Follow me into James 2. Let's open up our journals, our Bibles. James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you should sit here in this good place, while you have to say to the poor man, you should stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not, made, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judge, judges with evil thoughts? What is James' main point? Underline, show no partiality. Put a star symbol in your journals. Partiality is apparent in this context, right? This is very clear. We should not treat others who have power, status, influence, or money with more respect than those who do not in hopes of security, favors, or benefits. Bracket this phrase as well in your journals, as you hold the faith. James believes this type of life demonstrates living out Jesus' ways and mission. This is a big deal James is making. Showing no partiality reflects your recognition of living out the kingdom of God. James gives this example of how partiality could play out. Man wearing gold rings and fine clothing versus a poor man in shabby clothing. Patrick, one of our student directors in Boulder, during the sermon prep meeting, made a point in the two Greek words. He said they're really unique words because gold rings sort of has this idea of a man with gold fingers. He has tons of gold on him. And I think of James Bond when I think of Goldfinger. But, you know, this is the, the Greek here. Gold fingers coming in. And then the word for shabby clothing was sort of like filthy. You could touch him and dirt would fly in the air. He's filthy. Here's the problem with these types of behaviors as we examine it under the microscope of James. James is very blunt about the problem and warning. Looking back at verse 4, he says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges 
with evil thoughts. Wow, thanks James, that's really encouraging. (laughs) James wants those committed in faith to take the problem of partiality very seriously. On the harsh side, on the harsh side, James is so serious because he understands when we treat someone differently because of money or social status, you've shown yourself to be selfish with evil thoughts. Wow. Notably, if that wasn't enough, let's jump back into verse one. We don't show partiality because we are compelled by the Lord of glory. Circle that with me. James begins the sermon by noting up front that Jesus is the glorious one. The claim of believing this to be true to such a person who holds the faith is incompatible with partiality. Friends, aren't you thankful that God is impartial? That God is impartial. It's one of his characteristics. That is to say, when we judge others on our appearances, we shortchange how God judges. He judges the heart. This is a great verse, a Bible verse, a really great Bible verse to memorize. It's 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, as he was considering who the next king was going to be in Israel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This verse in the context of Samuel is about the, picking the difference between Saul and David. Something that is going on in the heart of Samuel is he's trying to pick out the best looking, the most capable. And God is picking out the one who has the great heart. To further add to this, James directs us to a theological argument of why we shouldn't show partiality. We're going to Bible college, people here. He wants us to look at God's view of his created order. In your books, Mark, verse 1 through 4 as the problem, and verse 5 through 7 as the theological argument. Looking back here in 5 and 7, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonored the poor man, but you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are those not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James says, look at God's work and God's story. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be made wise? As you read your Bible, there's hope for everyday, ordinary people like you and me. Who in the Old Testament was rich? Very few. Looking at the first disciples, who were the wealthy or extraordinary, well-put-together people that followed Jesus? Very few. Even Jesus himself wasn't rich, good-looking, or or was from a well-established part of the world. When someone asked where Jesus came from, the response was, does anything good come from Nazareth? Follow me back to your journals. Underline the verse five. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 
Do you see the key idea in this verse? Circle God's chosen. Yes, it seems by James, when you show partiality, you circumvent God's choosing the people he wants to work through. That doesn't mean God doesn't choose rich people. It means he chooses things which would be foolish to choose. Another major point here, maybe the most important point, there is absurdity of putting a man on the pedestal while God is in the room. There's a a certainty to putting man on the pedestal when God is in the room. To follow up, James makes a very practical argument here. Two inside, and so there's a theological and they're, they're very practical. Are not the rich those who oppress you and those ones who drag you to court? It's a very practical argument for James. The rich would be the ones that had the means to take someone to court. Unlike the United States where everyone has rights to a fair trial, an opportunity for the law to make things right, in these days with James writing, it was only the rich who could afford such a task. Turning the dial on the microscope of what was taking place in James's day, we see in verse 7 the conundrum which partiality has placed on the early church. Are not those the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It's a super practical and theological argument of why you wouldn't show partiality to these people. If this wasn't a robust argument enough for the local church, James appears, appeals to the church with a gospel argument. So this is verses 8 through 13. He uses Jesus' own words. Step into these verses with me. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are the judge to be judged under the law of liberty, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. I circled royal law in my journal. You can underline, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's curious. Why is it called the royal law? Simply because King Jesus, the royalty, had those words. He spoke them. It's royal because Jesus himself said them. Not only is that phrase a little perplexing, but there's also this word scripture in here. What scripture is James referring to? I thought James is one of the earliest documents of the New Testament. That means that they don't have the other books such as Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, Letters to Romans, you know, all those books that we would call the scriptures for James. Maybe that means two things for James. First, the scriptures he's referring to are the Old Testament. Or second, the words directly from Jesus' own teaching in which is he sums up the Old Testament by saying, love your Lord, your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. That makes sense when we see, James in Ma- when we see Jesus in Matthew 23. 
summing up all the scriptures, all the Old Testament, into two categories, loving God and loving others. With these in mind, James breaks down how one breaks the law and sins. As we go on to verse 9 through 11, if one of us truly practices partiality, they commit sin and stood as a transgressor. The word transgressor seems like a harsh word, doesn't it? But it's written twice in the text. Although adultery and murder are sins you notice a little more easily, partiality and favoritisms are sins too. It just might look a little more sneaky when you spot it out. As we dial in to examine James' argument, he seems to be intent on clarifying that we are all transgressors. In his day, many religious Jews had the notion that keeping the law was a balancing act on the scales. They felt strict observance to one point would compensate for disobedience in another point. We don't do that today, do we? As an example, might be, I might be good at praying every day, but I don't control my anger very well. I might suggest I can pray more and God will find favor for me and excuse my anger problem, right? We do it too. We rationalize our sin. It's important to note that we are all transgressors of the law. In fact, I'm the chief transgressor of the law. I am as guilty as charged. That's why I desperately need a savior. One expert put it this way. God's law more resembles a pane of a stained glass in which a break in one point of the glass means the entire pane is broken. The whole counsel of God is clear. Every sin does bring guilt. It takes one, only a single sin to make a person a sinner. Maybe the real point of James highlighting favoritism, this might be the point. I'm not 100% sure, but this could be it. He wants us to be really aware of the subtle sins which do the most damage to our lives. It's the subtle sins. It's not the extravagant ones. It's the ones that we can sort of brush to the side that really hurt us. Sins like speeding or gossip or telling white lies and favoritism. These are all sins, and yet they're very hard to notice within ourselves and within others. Again, this is bad news, but there is good news in this. Jesus came to save sinners. Let me pause here and say this is why Jesus is such a great Savior. He not only takes my past sins, my extravagant sins, my spectacles of sins, but he takes my present and my future sins through his blood and completes what I am incapable of incapable myself to do. Live a sinless life and be appropriation for sin, my sin. That is glorious news. Glorious news to us, friends, that Jesus is the great Savior. Moving on to closing remarks by James about partiality, we read in verse 12 through 13. 
So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. To translate what James is saying, James wants us to act like a person expecting to be judged by the rule of Jesus and sets us free. On the negative side, if we refuse to act mercifully, you can hardly expect to be treated with mercy. Those might seem like harsh words, right? Although this may be true, check out verse 13, the conclusion. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James wants to press the reality that kind mercy towards others wins over harsh judgment every time. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A person who loves our neighbor and and is winsome to the world the opposite, a person who, who, people who aren't loving, who are repulsed by the world and repulsed by the people of the world and have nothing to do with them, aren't that great a representative of God's love. All things considered, Charles Swindoll sums up this really brilliantly. James wraps up his indictment against partiality with an exhortation to apply his teaching. He says, let scripture be your standard. Let your love be your law. And let your mercy, and let mercy be your message. Let mercy be our message. Do not speak and act out of natural, superficial, cultural conditions. To speak and act the way that many believers acted in the first century and subject them to God's discipline. Believers will never fall under condemnation by God. That's Romans 8, 1. But they will be judged and rewarded on how they conduct themselves in this life. James reveals that the standard by which all believers will be judged, and that is a good judgment by the law of liberty. Maybe the most formative example I experienced when I was really young was my grandmother and her showing no partiality. I have these really early memories in Emerald, Texas of being on this old school bus on Sunday morning with her. Many of you might remember the church in the 80s, they had these things called bus ministries and what they would do is load up a school bus and they would drive around the neighborhoods, usually poorer communities and uh, not as great neighborhoods and pick up people who wanted to come to church. And she would do this every Sunday morning. She would get up really early And some Sundays I would ride the bus with her, especially at the end of the bus ride after church because the first Sunday of the month, she would spend all Saturday baking uh, homemade cookies and putting pink icing on top. So I wanted to be on the bus the first Sunday of the month. That's like a no-brainer because they celebrated birthdays on the first Sunday of every month in the bus ministry. But I remember those, those days of picking up kids that didn't look like me who didn't come from the same sort of upbringing I had or the house that I came from. And we would all go to church together. And then after church, even sometimes my grandmother would have them all over because actually her house backed up to the church property. There was an alley across the way. And then all these kids would come over and we would all sit in my grandmother's kitchen and she would make a casserole and we would eat together and we would play games all afternoon long. It's amazing. I I look back and I'm just mesmerized at my grandmother's energy. 
just the energy to do this. And the reality is that it's a real demonstration of the gospel that we are all a part of the family of God. When reality, it's actually a demonstration of the cross because mercy triumphs over judgment, which means that the cross is the leveling ground for all of us. There's not one of us who comes at a different position or perspective when we view ourselves in front of the cross. And that's about kingdom of God living, understanding that we are all equal under. And around that lunch table, I caught a really great view of what it was to be a church with no partiality. You see, as we put partiality under the microscope, Jesus knows we're all from different walks of life, and let us strive to show how God uses small and broken things for the Lord's glory. As one commentator wrote, Christianity grew and developed and the realization that in the environment that breathed hostility of the early church, that our doctrines and practices were different. A chief reason for the triumph of the early church was the superior model and the moral practice of Christians. They fed the needy, accepted outcasts, buried the poor, cared for the orphans and aged, encouraged prisoners and victims of disasters, and showed compassion to the persecuted. Their lives proved that Christianity produced a superior character. This is still the best proof of the reality of our faith. May God enable us today to make a bold demonstration of mercy towards others. For the bottom line is this, and this is the real point of why we don't show partiality. The heart of God is always for the people on the margins. And I'm thankful for that fact because at one time, I was on the margins, and God, being rich in mercy, reached out to me. That's the reality. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful. Grateful for your work, the ways in which you work, the ways in which you continue to press upon us the reality of how to live out our faith, about showing no partiality or playing favorites, because you don't do that as well. You want those far from you and near to you come to you. And I'm so thankful, Jesus, for the cross and the work of the cross the joy it is to know that we are all on level playing field to the supreme glory of you. That is in you is our hope, our life, and our death. And we look to you 
to resurrect us, to convict us, to change us, to be a people that is different than the world around us. May we take even the subtle sins that we so rationalize away and may we bring them forefront to you that our lives would be a great demonstration of you being rich in mercy towards us in your ever and never ceasing love given to your people and to your world. We love you, Jesus, and we are so grateful for James' 